This is Due South. I'm Leonita Inge. For more than half of the 20th century, Black actors were relegated to bit roles and side characters in American television. The Amos and Andy show was one of few Black-lit sitcoms in the 1950s. The 60s weren't much better, with only a few shows like Diane Carroll's Julia being one of very few notable examples. But in the 1970s, the tide started to turn with popular Black-led sitcoms like Sanford and Son, which debuted in 1972. It was just the first of several black shows that would premiere in that decade, and many, including Sanford and Son, were produced by the prolific screenwriter and TV producer Norman Lear. Lear died in early December at the age of 101, but his legacy lives on. I'm joined in the studio today by Mark Anthony Neal an author and James B. Duke Distinguished Professor of African and African American Studies at Duke University. Mark Anthony Neal, welcome. It's good to see you. Good to see you, Lena. And also joining us on the line is NPR TV critic Eric Deggins, um, who teaches a class on race and media at Duke University. Eric, welcome. Thank you for having me. Well, you know, I wanted to start our conversation sort of with a personal memory of mine. When I think of Norman Lear. And of course, when I was in elementary school, we don't know who Norman Lear was, but we knew who who everybody else was. We knew who J.J. was. We knew who um, Florida and James Evans were. We knew who Wheezy was. And that's what we watched week after week after week. And I think one of my favorite um, episodes of Good Times it was good times, was um, when they had a rent party. They ha- It was just a, I don't know why I love that rent party. Maybe I'd never heard of a rent party, you know. Um, I didn't grow up in, like, say, a, a public housing building, you know, in Chicago. I grew up in Florida, you know. Not a big house, but we had grass, <laughs> you know. We probably had a date tree know. in the yard somewhere. But that rent party was something. I was like, man, I need to figure out how to do that, you know, <laughs> down here. But, you know, Sanford and Son, we'll go back to that, was the first of the black Norman Lear shows to debut in 1972. And then Good Times came next in 74. And then the Jeffersons, you know, after that. And so, and we know... um At least two of those shows were spinoffs, right, Um, of shows that Norman Lear um, produced. So which shows really appeal to you most, you know, Mark Anthony Neal? (laughs) So I remember watching all my uh, All in the Family when I was a kid. You know, that that Saturday night block on CBS, which was so fantastic um, during that period of time. But, you know, two years later, you know, Good Times starts. and, and, And Good Times was... You know, it was the TV show that you had to watch, right? You were going to see some semblance of black folks who looked like you. I I never got, when I was a kid, the Sanford and Son humor, right? It it just felt a little older to me. But because little Michael uh, (laughs) Evans was closer to me in age and I had known dudes like J.J. and, and because I was fortunate to have a black father in the house, James Evans Sr., John Amos always resonated for me. You know, Good Times was my show. It was your show. And Mm -hmm. also, when I think of Sanford the Sun, I just remember 
you know, that heart attack Red Fox always was going to have, you know. <laughs> hey, I, I, Elvis, I'm <laughs> coming to join you. I'm coming to join you, honey. I love that part, and it never got old for me. So, Eric, I mean, I know, you know, you get paid to be the critic that you are, but did any of these characters resonate? Did you have a favorite? Yeah, well, you know, I, I love these shows, too. So I'm going to say that uh, right off. And I was the kind of kid, like, my mom and her um, her siblings were would get together and listen to comedy records. So they would listen to Richard Pryor. They would listen to Red Fox. They would close and lock the door, you know, <laughs> away from me. But I would seriously be right next to the door listening to what they were listening to. So I was hip to Red Fox. Uh, right when Sanford and Sons started to really take off. So I enjoyed watching Red Fox because I was a fan of his. And then Good Times comes along, and I'm a young black kid growing up in Gary, Indiana, which is about 40 miles east of Chicago where the show takes place. So, I, you know, it felt like it was about people that I knew. But beyond that, they they were an intact family. They had a dad in the house. Mm-hmm. I didn't have a dad in the house when I was growing up. And so it was a fantasy for me to watch this show and see an intact black family and and fantasize about what it would would be like to have somebody. Not only was he, um, not only did they have a father, but like so many fathers in, in in my amongst my friends, they they were traumatized. Now I realize, and and they were harsh, and they were hard to connect to. And like whatever you say about James Evans Senior, you could tell he loved his kids. You could tell he loved his family. The kids. Uh, loved him and he loved them back. You know, he 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 told them that he loved them, and and so so it wasn't just that they had a father; they had a father who cared about them and who loved them. And so I loved watching all of that. Uh, I had I used to get um, there was a, a kids magazine called Dino Mike that came <laughs> yes, out. I don't I know if anybody remembers Dino. that, <laughs> but um, but you know that was named and for right the the, uh, the the phrase that um, I don't know if it was named for the phrase that that um, that JJ used to say. He called himself Kid Dynamite all the time, but he was featured on the cover of that magazine, and I remember getting it when I was in uh, elementary school. Here I am. <laughs> Be bright, narrow man, and pure dynamite. So it was really important. Those shows were really important. And what was important about them was it was the first time that I can remember seeing authentic black culture on TV. You know, you talk about the rent party. The reason why that resonated with you is because it felt like something black folks would do. You know what I mean? And and even though, even though the shows were written by white writers and overseen by white producers, the performers were able to bring their authenticity to these storylines and really make it feel like you were seeing, you know, three-dimensional black people in these shows. And, 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 And there was still, at that point in the early 70s, very few places on television where you could see our culture depicted in anything approaching authenticity. So that's, I think that's why we responded to it so strongly. And, 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 and to Eric's point, you know, when you think about John, James Evans Sr. and John Amos, you know, he's only on the show from when it debuts in January of 74 and the character is killed off. It was so short. You know, you know by, you know, the fall of 1976. And, and I think it speaks a great deal to the fact that when James Evans Sr. died, it, it resonated across mm-hmm. black America, right? It's like we all had lost... <laughs> 
our own black father, you know, whether or not a black father was present or not. And, and because I spoke to the authenticity that he brought to the role. Mrs. James Evans, that's me. <laughs> we regret to inform you that your husband, James Evans, was killed in an automobile. That's the role. When she took the role, she was adamant about Florida having a husband in the house. She did not want to reproduce on television the pathology that had been attached to Black America as being fatherless. Um, so, the, you know, when the character is killed off and we can get into the reasons why, right. you know, it was a powerful moment, I think, for Black America. And, you know, Lear's his Black sitcoms have been, you know, critiqued, you know, in many ways, because I guess as we got older and we went to college and we could read and analyze and be critical, we we know why John Amos was like, I want off this show if it's yeah. not going to change. And and um, when we he learned that, it broke some he hearts. He didn't necessarily want off the show. He wanted what it happened, to be better. What happened was um, both he and Esther Roll had been uh, in conflict with the writers on the show and with Norman Lear um, about... The fact that the show was featuring J.J., the older son, who seemed to be much more of a stereotypical kind of character. Bugged out eyes, thick lips, um, always cracking stupid jokes, not book smart. Uh, There were good things about J.J., but he also sort of fit this classic uh, stereotype that we call the coon character. Mm -hmm. And so um, John Amos and Esther Rowe were always pushing against that. And John Amos will admit that he was not the most diplomatic guy. He actually threaten the lives of some of the writers <laughs> when they would come up with jokes that he didn't like. And so um, eventually Norman Lear decided, I think when they started their third season, I think he he he, uh, he called up John Amos and told him, the good news is um, we got picked up for another season, which, you know, was a I think it was a top five show at that point. Of course, they got picked up. Bad news is you're not going to be with us. And they wrote him off of the show. They had him die off camera. And, and, you know, not only was it um, the result of all these conflicts over the storylines, but then, as you say, you know, Esther Roll is in this, who played Florida Evans, is in this position where she's stuck on a show that is configured a way she didn't want it to be. She made it plain when they started. Um, the reason why they hired John Amos was because, uh, you know, they were going to do a spinoff. Florida Evans was uh, a maid on, on Maud, uh, another right. um, spinoff of All in the Family. And so the show was going to be centered on her, and she's the one who said she wanted to have uh, a husband in the house, and now that husband's gone. And, uh, and and so I think, you know, it made sense that the actors, the black actors, especially the more experienced ones, kind of felt like the show was betraying them, that the, the, the white producers who were running the show were turning it into something that they had all kind of said they, they didn't want it to be when they started it. That sounds like the story of many black actors' lives, <laughs> you know, and not just black actors, black journalists, black, you know, black, probably even um, professors. You, you think you're hired to do one thing, and then the script changes on you. And you have to correct me. I have to get the dates right. So then when John Amos, you know, he's out, you know, on good times, then we see him on Roots. You know, it's, it's like the best thing ever. Yeah, and uh, I, I mean, that, that's the other thing, at least for John Amos, there were some opportunities at that moment to do other things. 
obviously as the adult Kunta Kinte, he also had done uh, Let's Do It Again, yes. the Cosby and, and Portier film that comes out in 75. Um, but yeah, I remember he made a comment at the time, and, and I'm going to kind of misappropriate what he actually said. Um, but, you know, his point was kind of, I'd rather play a slave, you know, in a miniseries than that actually feel as though I'm enslaved on this television show, right? right. You know, which kind of echoes comments that we heard from black actresses in the 1930s, you know, in roles in which they had to play domestics. Well, I'm here on Due South. I'm talking with Mark Anthony Neal, I'm an author and professor at Duke University in African and African-American studies, and Eric Deggins, you know, our own NPR TV critic. You're not, you can't see me, Eric, but Mark <laughs> Anthony <laughs> Neal can, and I'm wearing my favorite Black love earrings. That's what I call them. I got them in Detroit. All right. All right I got now. them in Detroit about, ooh, I don't know, five or more years ago, definitely before the pandemic. Can you describe them, Mark Anthony? Oh, it's, it's Florida and James, you know, being Florida <laughs> and James, right? It's it's one of those things. I could imagine you walk through the world and white folks are like, hey, is, are those your parents? And oh, every, every black person is like, oh, yeah, we know exactly who those people are. And let me tell you, yeah, and that's right. why I wear them mostly on, on the weekends. I wear them to church sometimes when I just want to be, you know, naughty. Not naughty, wow, but I just so want to. You are a fan. I want to spark conversation. <laughs> you are an FAN fan. I know, but people have said, they say, I know I know who that is, but I just don't know. Somebody's even asked if that was me. If that was, if I was Florida, I was like, I wish. And um, and I I don't think I even tell people. If they just keep guessing, usually I just walk away and keep going. But if they know, they will stop and say, oh, that, look at there. And I wish yeah. I could have bought several pairs and passed them out. But I was so glad when I found this. So I am a fan, but it's amazing. Like you said, they were only good times was on the air a short time and even a shorter time with um, John Amos playing um, James Evans. Yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah. And, and you know, what's in, important, though, about Sanford and Son and Good Times is that it proved to the TV industry that you could center shows on black characters who were acting much more authentically than we had seen any black characters right. before. And it would be successful. I mean, it wasn't just that Good Times was beloved by black viewers. It was a top five show at its height. Uh, it, it, you know, lots of people love that show. Uh, and so it led to the creation of, you know, this genre that I'm calling the ghetto comms, mm -hmm. where uh, these are shows that feature black casts and they're set in urban neighborhoods, uh, either poor or um, middle class. And, uh, and, and again, bringing a sense of authenticity where, where black folks feel like they're seeing themselves. So shows like What's Happening. Um, which was uh, created, um, developed by one of the co-creators of Good Times, one of the black writers who was a co-creator of Good Times. Um, That's My Mama was another show. Mm -hmm. And and as you pointed out, you know, these shows elevated black performers to the point where they uh, might be able to get other roles. So we saw John Amos show up playing the adult version of Kunta Kente in the uh, legendary miniseries Roots. So, so these shows were important because not only did they prove that shows centered on black people could be successful, they elevated these black performers. They made stars out of Red Fox, out of John Amos, out of Esther Roll, 
um, frankly, out of Sherman Hemsley uh, mm-hmm. from the Jeffersons, frankly, people who might not have been able to get starring roles otherwise. And I give a lot of credit. You know, these were often contentious relationships, as um, Eric just mentioned, between these black actors, some of them who were veterans and the producers of the show, right? And we talk a lot about Norman Lear because he's kind of the figurehead, but when you talk about folks like Bud, Bud Yorkin or an Alan Mannings, you know, very often it's actually that's where the contentious relationships were hap- happening. But you look at someone like Red Fox, and, and I don't think he gets enough credit for the different ways that he pushed back in making sure that it was a certain level of authenticity, right? You know, and, and I'm thinking about the work of, of Bethany Butler, who just wrote a great book called Black TV. And, and she talks about the fact that, you know, Red Fox hired, you know, um, Richard Pryor, you know, to write a couple of episodes of Sanford and Son, the second season. Only two of those episodes, uh, you know, showed up online, you know, were broadcast, but that was that. How, you know, the producers were not convinced that LaWanda Page could be an actress in a sitcom, right? And and he threatened to walk away from the show if they didn't hire LaWanda Page. And of course, she's one of the most memorable figures, you know, from from Sucker. the show, right? So so yes. it's all those kinds of examples, right? When you see the level of talent, um, you know, when James is gone, you get figures like Moses Gunn, you know, who comes in as a father figure. Just the level of talent that comes through a show like Good Times, incredible dramatic actors, right? Whose only jobs they were able to get sometimes where in these bit roles in a show like Good Times or The Jeffersons. I mean, those shows that Norman Lear created was an important platform for black actors and actresses to be able to show, you know, their talents to a broader audience. So when you talk about, we brought up The Jeffersons, um, you know, was it presented as like a, a countermeasure to say James in Florida, Evans, you know, where George and I said, what... <laughs> Georgia you know, Weezy. they were Georgia, Georgia Weezy, Weezy were wealthy. <laughs> were they wealthy because James in Florida were poor? I mean, was I just wonder if there was some civil rights even pushback well, to make sure the next Norman Lear program, you know, was not st- stereotypical in that way. Well, your your instincts are pretty good because in Norman Lear's uh, memoir, he says that members of the Black Panthers came to meet with them. That was the Black Panthers complained. And complained that um, by at that point, um, um, Sanford and Son and Good Times were on the air, and that um, you know all his shows with black characters, the characters were the black characters were poor; they were servants, and and so um, that that's what Norman Lear said sort of pushed him to to think about um, spinning off the black family that lived next to the bunkers on All in the Family and giving them their own show called The Jeffersons. Where we're moving on Stay tuned for more from NPR TV critic Eric Deggins and Duke University professor Mark Anthony Neal and how we choose to remember renowned TV producer Norman Lear and his depictions of blacks on television. You're listening to Do South. From Television City in Hollywood. Good time. Any time you need a payment. Good time. Any time you'll be a free. Good time. Any time you're out from under. 
I'm joined today by Mark Anthony Neal. I'm a professor of African and African-American studies at Duke University and by Eric Deggins, an NPR TV critic. You know, it's important to kind of, you know, when you think of Lear's contributions and I really enjoyed hearing about the spinoffs. And um, I think that was a nice game we played in our family, connecting the dots. Like, oh, she was on this show, and then he was on this show. And then how it grew into what, you know, pretty much raised us. Because we didn't have all that cable, did we? We had like three <laughs> networks. I mean, you didn't have a lot of choices in the programs that you watched. And so they they were quite pivotal, pivotal in your life. But I want to talk more about, I guess, um, the criticism, you know, like, did it do more harm than good? You know, um, the way a lot of the programs um, were related to us. And I don't know, any examples today that we can compare these shows with? I, I think there was always going to be a challenge in those days because the writers' rooms were not representative of the shows that were being produced. There simply were not enough white black writers in those rooms to push back on producers and other writers to say that you might find this funny. This might be your view of what authentic Yeah, they weren't in is. the room. They weren't in the room, but they they existed. It's just like during the civil well, rights, rights movement. Right. They say, oh, there's no black it, journalists no, to like, cover. Well, you can find them. Yeah. Right? They're, they're out there. They're out there. I think it was important because it was the first time white Americans saw black Americans on television on a regular basis. Um, to Norman Lear's credit, and obviously has to roll in this context, whatever J.J. became, as long as James Evans Senior was there, there was a balance to that. I think as the 70s went on, we lost that sense of balance in terms of characters. Um, because, though, you know, you had this success during the 1970s, some of these shows were both commercial and critical successes. It at least created a context in which, in the 1980s, you could have this next generation of shows, Cosby, 227, Amen, um, Family Matters, and we could go on and on with those shows, which is then, of course, when Fox and, and WB and all those networks emerged in the 1990s, you had a whole nother generation of that. I think... Even in the 80s and the 90s, you still had a challenge in terms of who was in the writer's room and who would be able to depict some sort of authenticity, particularly as Black America became more comfortable with seeing a more diverse and myriad version of Black America on television. Um, the Black Panther critique is important, right? You know, why are we always seeing poor Black folks, right? Why can't, why doesn't James, J.J. have a job and why can't James Sr. keep a job, right? Um and so I, I think in some ways we're still in a in a moment where there's still that struggle to present an authentic view of what Black America is and the fullness of what Black America is in this particular moment. I I, I think what I what I would say I mean all of that um, makes all kinds of sense. Um, what I would say about the drawbacks is that it's easy it's easier for us to look back now. Yeah. Now that. I, in my class at Duke, I always talk about these images being a progression. So we start with super stereotypical stuff in Amos and Andy, and then we get to sort of perfect Negroes in, <laughs> um, you know, I Spy and Julia and, and the characters that Sidney right. Poitier played. And then, you know, we get to more authentic characters in Sanford and Son and, and, and Good Times, and then we get to wealthy black characters in the Jeffersons. It's a progression. 
And so it's easier for us to look back now and say, oh, that joke was was stereotypical or that character was stereotypical. I mean, the JJ character, that was obvious. A lot of people objected to that at the time. But but some of the other stuff we look back and, and it's easier for us to see now how rooted in stereotypes some of these things were. The other thing is that these conflicts weren't always so easy to adjudicate. You know, Norman Lear, uh, I interviewed him in 2016 for the Smithsonian. So I got to talk to him about some of this stuff. And he talked about a storyline they wanted to do on Good Times where Thelma was thinking about having premarital sex. And Esterol didn't even want to consider hmm. doing the show. Uh, Norman wanted to do it and have her make the right decision at the end so they could have the discussion. And ultimately, that's what they did. Now, I, I think there's a lot of people out there who would say that dramatizing a young girl, thinking about it, and then ultimately making what most of us might say is the right decision is a great episode. So there, there's, you know, there were conflicts made by where people of good faith were on both sides and they were debating what's the best thing to do in terms of depicting this black family, because there's only one or two shows like this, yeah. you know, right. there, there, there's not a, there wasn't a pipeline to get black writers in the mix. There wasn't even a sense that black writers were valued to be in the room. Mm -hmm. There was, I think, I think a lot of white producers thought, um, that, that, you know, most black writers were too inexperienced to be able to make good television and that whatever they would bring wasn't really worth right. bringing them into the room. And that's the big difference between then and now. Now we have, um, you know, a show like This Is Us. I talked about a show like This Is Us uh, had three black writers. One of them was also a director on the show. And they had a lot to do with shaping the arc of the black characters on that mm -hmm. show. Mm -hmm. And now you look at shows like Atlanta and insecure, and they are created mostly written by, mostly produced by um, people of color. Right. So you that authenticity is valued, and and that's the big difference between then and and now. I think in, that's in right. Television. You can't you can't forget Abbott Elementary. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Abbott Abbott Elementary too. But but um, you know Atlanta and and insecure, I think, were really important uh, touchstones because they came earlier, at a time when you know so-called prestige uh, TV shows that still didn't necessarily feature a lot of um, right. black creators. And, and Issa Rae in particular has been right. a pioneer in that. Well, is, um, is Norman Lear kind of given too much credit for the, the black sitcom classics that um, he created? You know, we, as you know, the man's gone, he, he, but he changed television and we have to give him that. But I, I, what, do, what do you think, Mark Anthony? I, I think there's no question. I, I'm not sure we see those characters, you know, even beginning with All in the Family without the kind of intervention that Norman Lear makes in the 1970s, right? There's a way in which it could only have happened in that era, you know, right on the cusp of the civil rights movement, um, corporate America realizing that they needed black people's money too. <laughs> One of the best ways to do that was to be able to sell your goods to them while they watched themselves on television. Right? I mean, this is the Flip Wilson show is not obviously a product of, of Norman Lear's world, but you know, we forget how popular the Flip Wilson show oh, was that. right in that moment. And, and suddenly this visibility of black folks on television and, and Norman Lear, I think, you know, whatever the critiques we might have of some of those characters in hindsight, I think he created a platform, right, you know, for black people to exist in television, you know, in, in their relative fullness in that moment. And he deserves credit for that. So, gentlemen, yeah, what are you— what, 
What were you going to say? I was just going to say what's, what's obvious about that time is that it took powerful white producers saying that they wanted to create different images for black people for those images to exist. It happened with I Spy, it happened with Julia, mm-hmm. and it happened with Norman Lear shows. So what you say, Mark Anthony, um, that the characters of these shows have aged well or poorly. <laughs> Because, you know, you can watch these programs on cable now. I've seen good times probably a week or two ago. You know, I'll use Sherman Hemsley as a good example because I don't actually think he gets enough credit for how gifted an actor he was. I mean, he he walks into the Jeffersons all in, all in the family after starring in Pearly Victorious. Um, that's kind of like the thing that made him. Norman Lear saw him in that context. And he was a gifted physical comedian, you know, something that he doesn't get a lot of credit for, right? And we can, you know, in some ways, there's a timelessness to that performance in that sense, right? But obviously the race politics and the social politics of the era are kind of cemented in that particular moment in time. I think when you think about John Amos and, you know, James Evans Sr., I, I think there's a through line you know, going forward of black father figures on television shows in some ways, you know, referencing James Evans Jr., right? You know, I think Cosby thought he was creating the middle-class educated version of John Amos. I think he was very conscious, right, of wanting to create a father figure that was not John Amos or Fred Sanford, right? When you think about a show like um, uh, Family Matters, you know, which ran an astounding 200 episodes. I mean, the only show that ran longer was The Jeffersons, right? But when you think about Reginald Vell Johnson's character, right, it's clearly a reference to the idea of the visible, present, engaged Black father. So I think in that regard, some of those characters do kind of hold, you know, are, are still kind of timeless in, in some sense. Yeah, and it's worth noting that, um, <clears throat> again, according to, to Norman Lear, um he always wanted to have um, Sherman Hemsley on All in the Family, but um, he was wrapped up and committed to Pearlie on Broadway. So um, he created a character of George's brother <laughs> who, who appeared on All in the Family and tangled with, um, with, Archie. with yeah. uh, Archie Bunker for a while uh, until uh, Sherman Hemsley was free and then he could appear on the show. And once he did, the character took off in a way I mean, all props to the the actor who played the brother, but, you know, didn't quite take off in the way that when you had Sherman Hemsley come in with his electric energy and his physicality and his uh, ability to, to, to breathe life into the characters, you know, Norman Lear always credited the actors. He said Archie Bunker didn't exist until Carol O'Connor played him right. and figured out how to make all the stuff they were writing really live and breathe and be and be super funny. Same thing with Sherman Hemsley. Same thing with Esther Roll. Same thing with all of these great actors who wound up, um, you know, being the center of these classic shows. Uh, even Marla Gibbs, who sort of learned how to run a TV show from watching how the Jeffersons ran, went off and and uh, and developed two two seven. Um, you know, uh, and 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 was a driving force as an executive producer in that show. Gentlemen, what are you watching now? I've been thinking about it. I watch a lot of reruns because I'm up late at night. But guess what? On Saturdays, 
when there's a new episode on, I do not miss Death in Paradise on PBS. <laughs> do you hear me? I mean, I don't know who writes Death in Paradise, but I enjoy seeing that black cast in somewhere, Guadalupe, wherever they are. <laughs> but I, I enjoy that. <laughs> Well, I'm, it, so uh, are you? Uh, are you talking about black-centered shows, or are you talking about shows in general? No, I'm really talking about shows in general because I also watch reruns of Castle, um, just about <laughs> <laughs> about every night. But um, but I also watch a lot of PBS, and that's you know, I enjoy oh, Death sure, in Mark, Paradise. Go, go ahead, go ahead, Mark. What, so what so for like? me, you know, particularly since there had been the strike and they're not producing new shows, I'm catching up on. All the episodes I've missed, the Blue Bloods. Um, I love the family dynamic of the show. You know, it's a cop show, and you know it has all those cop things, and I'm not always comfortable with. Um, but this dynamic of a multi generational family that demands that they sit down every Sunday and, and adjudicate their work, <laughs> their week, and their disagreements to me is actually pretty fascinating in this moment. I would say if you have access to Showtime, there is this really wonderful British series called Dreaming Whilst Black. And Mm. it's about um, a a young black man who's the descendant of immigrants who wants to be a movie director, but he's stuck in this dead end job uh, at at an employment agency. And he's enduring microaggressions and and like this, this white coworker gets to talk to him, talking to him about what films are good. And he thinks, oh, he wants to talk to me because I'm an aspiring director and I'm a film nerd. And he finds out, no, he, this white person wants to talk to him because he's dating a black woman and he wants to find out what films are good for them to watch. <laughs> wow. So it, it's really funny. It's really well done. Th- this character is also his own worst enemy in some ways, but it's a really great sort of example of how you get something really authentic when you let people from a very specific uh, cultural area kind of tell their own story. So I love that quite a bit. And you know what? I'm always up for a rewatch of The Wire, man. I've been, I've, I've been rewatching you and I the, both. The, the, the seasons that I really love. The first season, the fourth season with the kids uh, in particular, the third season where, spoiler alert, Springer Bell gets Springer killed. Bell. You know, I'm just, <laughs> I'm really, really uh, enjoying um, revisiting a show like that. I'll give you one more, uh, just just to add some diversity. I'm a big fan of Justified, too. And this is a show um, that's, um, you can see it on Hulu. It, it, it's uh, an FX show. And it, it, it's about this uh, guy who, who grew up in a holler in Kentucky. He comes back as a as a marshal, U.S. marshal, uh, to to catch a, a, an Uber criminal who's there. And he runs into all these other people. And it is one of the most refreshing depictions, I think, of white Southern culture that I have seen in an in an action show. And it's it's really well done. And and uh, and it's in the style of Elmore Leonard. So if you like. Um, his yeah. novels, you'll like this show. And Timothy Oliphant is playing a character that seems sort of tailor-made uh, for him in playing Raylan Gevins, this U.S. Marshal. So so well, those those are the shows. Those are t- three really good ones. Well, when I get off the radio, I'll start watching <laughs> more and more television. You know, gentlemen, this was great. I'm glad to have you on and get a lot off my chest, you know, as we 
celebrate and criticize a little Norman Lear, you know, it, it definitely shaped me as a young person watching those programs. So thank you, Mark Anthony Neal, an author, and James B. Duke, Distinguished Professor of African and African American Studies at Duke University, and our own Eric Deggins, an NPR TV critic who teaches a class on race and media at Duke University. Thank you, gentlemen. Thank you. Thank you. Was a freedom she didn't care Coming up next week, we'll be talking about personal finance, and we want to hear from you. We'll be talking with an expert about how to make good money decisions in the new year, and we want your questions in advance. What do you want to know about the basics of finance and money, year-end tax considerations, or anything else money-related? Send us your questions and comments right now. The deadline is Thursday at 11 a.m. Our email, south at wunc.org. Or even better, you can record your question in a voice memo on your phone and email it to us. Again, it's south at wunc.org. And your question may be on the air. You're listening to Do South on WUNC. Maud was recorded on tape before a live audience. And the